We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church in Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. If you have your Bible, we invite you to turn the page 884 or 1029 if you're using the Pew Bible as we look at the last part of Revelation chapter 2. We are in a sermon series in which we're going through the book of Revelation. We, the last couple of weeks, looked at John's letter to the seven churches, and we come to the fourth church this morning, the church by Tyra. Now, last week we looked at how the church of Pergamon had compromised with the world. And we talked about the church as the bride of Christ, and would she remain faithful? Would she be married to Jesus, or would she be married to the world? One person put it this way, if the, if the church married the world in Pergamum, then what we see here in Thyatira is the celebrating of anniversaries. This is a church that not only tolerates sin, but is going to encourage it, absorb it, endorse it, and celebrate it. They don't talk about sin. They wouldn't consider anything necessarily sinful. That's the church in Thyatira. Thyatira is the smallest of the cities, I believe, that we've looked at. It's about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. So we're continuing kind of on this postal circuit where each of these letters is read to the seven churches. Now, even though it was a small area, it was a significant commercial hub in the Roman province. It was at the intersection of two major roads. It was on one of the roads that led from Laodicea to Pergamum. Now, even though it was small, it was a significant commercial hub. John writes, beginning in verse 18, Now to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now he keeps with the pattern of beginning with a description of Jesus that primarily comes from the description of Jesus that occurs in Revelation chapter 1. He's introduced as the Son of God, whose eyes are blazing like fire, and whose feet are like burning of bronze. Now, this is very similar to what you read in verses 13 through 15 in Revelation chapter 1. But here, rather than being called or referred to as the Son of Man, he's referred to as the Son of God. The particular situation that's taking place in this community, in this particular church, required that John reaffirm the deity. The holiness, the purity, the power, the glory of Jesus. He's also indicating the righteous anger that Jesus has at his people's sin. Now there's this word, burnished bronze, which describes his feet. And it's the translation of a real rare Greek word. But the idea is that there are a number of alloy metals that were put together and created this product that when polished, Shined and shimmered with a lot of uh, 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 brightness. Uh, the idea that I have is chrome on a car or a motorcycle. After you wash your car or you wash your motorcycle, you spend a lot of time cleaning and polishing the chrome, and the light hits it and it just flashes. That's kind of the idea here, in which John says he has these feet of burnished bronze, and he's just emphasizing that he's a righteous judge, and that he's coming if his people refuse to repent to judge. Their sin. Notice that he uses, this is the only time in the book of Revelation, the title of the Son of God. 
He doesn't refer to Jesus anywhere else as the Son of God except in this particular situation. And he's doing it to draw attention that they're dealing with the living God. The second person of the Trinity. Jesus, the risen Christ. He describes him in such a way that we see that there's penetrating power. His eyes flash. They flame like fire. He sees what his people do. He knows who and what they are. He penetrates to the heart of the matter. But he's not only the one who can see all, he's the one who will judge all. This description is clear. What we see that follows when Jesus says, I'll give them an opportunity to repent, but if they don't repent, then I'll come and judge them, is showing us that he is a God who will judge sin. This church was standing in idolatrous and sexual immorality. They were compromising with the culture around them. And what happens is they allow the authority of God's word, the authority of the risen Christ who governs the church, to be replaced with some other authority. So that's what's going on in the description of who Jesus is. But we've talked about that Jesus, when he evaluates the church, there are sometimes really good things that he commends his people on. Here, he commends them. He says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. He says, look, I know you love me. I know you've endured, you've been patient, and you're serving. But it's interesting, this church is kind of the opposite of what Ephesus was when we studied the letter to Ephesus. This is a church that has a love. It seems a genuine love for God. A church that seems to be growing. A church that seems to be busy and active. But they've lost a zeal for God's word, for God's holiness, and for God's purity. Where Ephesus was doing all the right things, but they had forsaken their first love. They seemed to be going through the motions, just practicing a cold, orthodox religion. The Thyatira had this wonderful ministry in this service. But what they lacked was a commitment to truth and a commitment to purity, a commitment to God's word and to rejecting the false teaching of one that we're about to read about called Jezebel. We want to be a church that has the good of Ephesus and the good of Thyatira. We want to be a church that loves God. We want to be a church that loves the word of God. We want to be a church that loves the truth of who God is. We want to know God as he's revealed in the scriptures so that we can rightly serve and worship him. But on the flip side, we want to love people. We want to love people really well. Those are not mutually exclusive terms. If you love God, you really love God, your heart's been transformed by the gospel, and you've received the love of God in your life, it will lead to you loving his people. John writes in another epistle in 1 John chapter 4, he says, we love because he first loved us. He says, the origin of our love is because we have experienced the love of God. He goes on, he says, But if anyone says, I love God, but I hate my brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we can't say in one breath, oh yeah, I love God, just follow God, do what God wants, and then in our heart secretly nurse hatred for our brother or our sister. Those are incompatible realities for the people. That, and it does happen from time to time. And if it does, we need to repent of it. 
We need to confess it for what it is, repent of it, and cry out to God to pour out His love in our lives so that we can let that love be unleashed to others. Let me give you an example of what it means to love people today. We're having a birthday party for Sally Sperry. Why are we having a birthday party for Sally Sally Sperry? Because we want to show her we love her. See, when people love you, they throw birthday parties to communicate that love. Even if you don't want a birthday party, they'll throw you a birthday party. I've experienced one of those birthday parties where I didn't want one, but because my family loved me, they threw one for me anyway. That's what we do. When you love people, you show it. When you love people, you can't help but do things that demonstrate that love. So John says you can't say, I love God and love my brother. But Jesus takes it further in the Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter 6. This is what he says. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. That's what you hear. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Jesus said, look, it's easy to love your husband, love your wife. It's easy to love your son or your daughter. It's easy to love your mom, your dad, your brothers, your sisters. It's easy to love the people who love you. He's like, even the tax collectors do that. I mean, I mean that's just that's common sense. Everybody kind of does that. It's a natural breathing. He said, but I'm saying to you as my people, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who want to persecute you. He's saying the kind of love that God has shown you, that's the kind of sacrificial love you're to show other people. We want to be a church like fire fire. In the sense that we're a church that's growing in a love for God and a love for people. We want both of those things to be realities here at Crosspoint. There are good things going on in fire fire. The Lord says, I know, you've been patient, you've been serving, you've been enduring, but there are also some significant concerns. He goes on. He says, but I have this against you in verse 20, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. We mentioned earlier that five times is this commercial color. There are a number of important practices or trades that were going on. There was garden making, there was pottery, there was brass working, but there was also the practice of, of dyeing of clothing and fabric. We know this because of Lydia, who appears in Paul's ministry in the book of Acts, was from this region, and she becomes uh, not only a supporter financially of Paul, but kind of a key leader in the emerging church. Now, because of the industry, this city was known for its trade guilds. You could kind of uh, equate this to a contemporary union where people gather together and they, they share kind of a common goal and, and uh, they do things in order to kind of promote everybody's welfare. But it's different in the sense that they're not just gathering together to promote better working conditions, you know, shorter working days, uh, you know, better benefits and higher pay. These were really actually more like religious cults. They gathered together and they worshipped a particular god or deity that represented their particular trade. 
Now, this would put Christians in a very unique kind of position. You had two choices. You can try to be an independent craftsman, which almost guaranteed that you would fail as a businessman. Or you could compromise your beliefs and you participate in these trade guilds. It would put God's people in a position in which they would have to say yes to compromising with the world or yes to following God and risking the loss of their business and financially destitute. And so they're in this position and Jesus says to the church, I have this against you. You tolerate this woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. She misleads my servants into sexual immorality into the eating of the food sacrificed to idols. Now, in the Old Testament, Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidon, which is a village in Lebanon. She was the wife of King Ahab of Israel in the northern kingdom, and she's noted for introducing the worship of Baal, and not only just introducing it, but supporting it financially and helping it to grow and to flourish amongst God's people. Now, the worship of Baal, who was kind of a cult fertility god, was marked by temple prostitutes, male and female temple prostitutes. It was marked by all kinds of sexual immorality practices. And it's Jezebel who's promoting this. Personally, she herself supported by into 800 prophets of Baal who would eat her table. If you're familiar with that encounter in which Elijah, the prophet of God, calls down uh, you know, judgment on the prophets of Baal, he courageously goes up against all of these religious leaders but it's Jezebel who drives him out in fear where God comes and speaks to him in that still, small voice. She was a woman who was dead set on erasing the covenant worship of the God Yahweh. She was a murderous, evil woman. Her husband, King Ahab, wanted a vineyard of a man named Naboth, and so she had him killed so that they could, they could have it for themselves. That's why Jesus selects her name for this particular occasion. That whoever this woman was who was claiming to be a prophetess was leading God's people astray. Here's the issue. She was teaching that it was alright for these Christians to indulge in sexual immorality and in idolatry. The connection between being a part of the trade union and being a successful businessman she, or businesswoman, she was saying, it's okay for you to do these things that you know are wrong in order for your business to succeed and thrive. If you're going to be successful in this town, you're going to have to join one of these unions. God will look the other way. It'll be okay for you to go into these meetings and eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Now, when these, get, these guilds or these unions would meet, they would often meet for a common meal. And this meal was, in large part, a religious ceremony. It would begin in, or take place in a temple. It would often begin with the drink offering kind of being poured out. I don't know how many of you are, are rap fans, but if you know, like Tupac or some of the other rap stars, uh, you know, from back in the day, they would pour one out. They'd take a 40 ounce uh, malt liquor and they would pour out uh, the beer for their friends who had died, for their dead homies who were they were pouring out for some of them. This is actually an ancient practice that goes all the way back to this time and even before, in which a drink would be poured out and offered to the God. That's the way it would begin. And it would continue with everybody eating meat, which was uh, primarily meat that had been sacrificed to idols. So if you were a Christian, then the official position of the church was that to participate in this was wrong. It was a violation of faith and obedience and commitment to Jesus. So this is the dilemma. If I want to succeed, I've got to be a part of this group. But if I want to follow Christ, then I can't continue in these practices. 
to participate in the union, to be pressured to participate in the union, was to engage in the worship of idols. And so this woman comes along, and she says, all right. Um, so this woman comes along and says, it's okay. You know, yeah, maybe you'll feel a little bit guilty about it, but you shouldn't. You shouldn't really feel that bad. She's teaching them that in order for them to succeed, they might have to do things that make them feel a little dirty. Now, I professed several times before, I'm a conspiracy nut. Okay? I like reading about fake lunar landings, the JFK assassination, any kind of conspiracy, the, the flat earth theory. I love reading and watching videos and hearing different people talk about all these kind of conspiracy theories. You go on YouTube, which is where a lot of these kind of resources are, and you watch videos like I watch. You know, I might watch a, a, a sermon on uh, you know, John chapter 1, and then I might watch a, a flat earth video, and then I might watch a, you know, something else. Well, YouTube has these real complex algorithms in which they take your viewing habits and they come up with, oh, well, if you like this, then you might like that. Well, inevitably, after watching a sermon and a conspiracy theory video, I'll get suggested, you need to watch this Illuminati in Hollywood video. Okay? And so they go on and they talk about how if you're going to be successful in Hollywood, then you have to join these satanic secret societies. If you're going to rise in the ranks and be a great movie star or a great uh, musician, then you're going to have to commit yourself and if you do all of these kind of satanic rituals so that you can kind of be marked out uh, and, and, and succeed and kind of climb up the ladder. Now, I don't know if these things are true. They do on these videos. They provide all kinds of evidence. It's all anecdotal. I mean, it could be interpreted numerous kinds of ways. But that's what's happening here. They're saying, if you're going to rise in the ranks, if you're going to be a, one of the movers and shakers in, in this community, you're going to have to be a part of this group. And Christians were like uh, torn between... You know, do I do what God calls me to do, or do I do what will guarantee my success in business? Now, he says that she's led them away in idolatry and sexual immorality. If you look back at the letter of the Pergamum, we see the exact same thing. The Lord links sexual immorality with idolatry. That seems kind of strange. We don't think of those things connected, but one inevitably leads to the other. Sexual immorality is a violation of God's word. If you read the Bible, it's clear that for God's people to engage in any type of sexual immorality, it's wrong. If you intentionally violate God's word, if you intentionally disobey what God has said to us, or if you reject his authority, that's another way of saying it. If you reject his authority in this particular sphere of sexuality, then what you're doing is that you're saying you're no longer God. Okay? In this particular area of my life, you no longer are the authority. And if you do that, then you have to find that authority somewhere else. I'll give you an example. How many of you have ever heard someone say something like this? I can't stay in this marriage because I'm miserable, and that's not what God wants for me. I'm leaving because I've been unhappy for far too many years, and God would never want me to be this unhappy for the rest of my life. People all the time, Christians, use this as a rationale or a justification for divorcing from their husband or their wife. Now, it's not that happiness is such a bad thing. The happiness is not really bad or good. It's what sometimes people call a neutral value. Happiness changes. As culture changes and we emphasize certain things, happiness changes. The experience of happiness is changing. So it's not really good or evil, but it's a cultural value that's constantly shifting. And with those shifts... 
there comes the danger of pursuing happiness would actually take us away from God. It would lead us to reject the truth of God's Word and His authority in our life. Happiness, or the pursuit of happiness, actually would wind up being an assault on our Christian faith. In this particular instance, leaving a marriage in order to pursue happiness, God has been replaced with the idea of being happy. This idea of my life being exactly what I always dreamed and imagined. Happiness becomes the functional savior of this person's life. It becomes the one thing that they're willing to serve and they're also willing to sacrifice to. Sydney Wright, she writes her experience with this particular phenomenon. She said, her dad left their family for another woman. She says, the woman that my dad loved so much, so much that caused him to run away with her, well, eventually, their happiness didn't last, even though they were sure that it would. He realized that she wasn't all that he thought she was, and that they weren't really so great together after all. She eventually went back to her husband and her family, only to run off with another man she loved and wanted happiness with. They thought they would find happiness in the arms of one another, but what they discovered is that happiness is kind of like the goal is always moving. You know, you never finally arrive kind of like a mirage in the desert. You think you're almost there, and and then it's just above, you know, just beyond the horizon. But see, our actions have consequences. Our pursuit of happiness, especially when it's in direct opposition to God's Word, leads to destruction. Notice what Jesus says in verse 21. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Unless they repent of the works, and I will strike the children dead. See, we don't really serve these things, but we're willing to sacrifice them. In the case of Cindy Wright's family, she says her dad eventually comes back, but the relationship with his wife was never the same. The love, the trust was never the same. His kids were never the same. Cindy confesses to living with insecurity that impacted her own marriage. Her brother self-medicated with alcohol and drugs and died in an early age of alcohol abuse. In pursuit of happiness, this man sacrificed his family. When we replace God with something else, it will demand our all. It will demand our allegiance. It will demand that we sacrifice to it. And if we fail it, whatever it is, it will leave us in death and destruction. Jesus is the one who, when we fail, offers forgiveness grace and mercy. The consequences of his decisions, our decisions when we violate God's word, they continue out like ripples in a pond. But notice who Jesus holds responsible. He holds the church responsible because they tolerated this perverse teaching and these actions. But to you, the rest of my time, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you, I say, do not lay on any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, so he who has an ear laid here, what the Spirit is saying to the churches. He's addressing the church. He's saying, there are some of you who continue in following truth. 
believers who have not absorbed and are now practicing these false doctrines and who, know, who are not tolerating this false scripture. And it says, if you continue, if you continue, then I'll give you power over nations. Uh, you'll rule with him. The morning star. Christ himself is revealed as the bright and morning star. God's giving to his people the gift of himself. What he's saying is if you continue in the end, you will experience my presence. You will experience my power and my favor in a way that you've never experienced before. John's writing to the church. and He's writing to specific individual churches, but he's also writing to the church at large. Some of the things that we read about Ephesus, some of the churches, mm-hmm. things you read about the church at Smyrna and Pergamum and the church at Thyatira apply to us collectively and to us as individuals. Because God is a gracious and merciful God, He gives His people a chance to repent. So maybe something here this morning was highlighted, or maybe you connected the dots to some other area where you've compromised. Maybe it's not sexual immorality or idolatry, but it's something else in which you have made small concessions, maybe here and there, and as a result, you find yourself a place you never imagined. What Jesus says, if you repent, now be kind, be gracious, be merciful. So this morning, let's just spend a few moments in prayer, asking the Lord if there's anything specific that we need to repent of this morning. That in the presence of a holy God, is there anything that He would find at fault in us today? And if He does, then confess that.